I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to today's podcast the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center, Elizabeth Wydra. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be with you. Elizabeth, do you have any sense as it relates to the second impeachment of Trump as to whether or not the legislators are proceeding from the perspective that they could not convict by the two-thirds required in the Senate and still, by a simple majority, disqualify Donald Trump from future public office? Well, I think the Constitution, um, you know, speaks to disqualification as a consequence of conviction of impeachment. Uh, So the the Constitution talks about the House having the sole power of impeachment, which they have exercised, and then the Senate being the body that tries the articles of impeachment. And then the Constitution contemplates once there is a conviction, which occurs through a two-thirds vote, then the Senate can, by a simple majority, then determine to disqualify uh, the person who is impeached from holding future office, which is really the most important part of what we're talking about here with respect to President Trump. That is under the impeachment clause. There is also the idea, and I don't know if it applies to Trump as well as those insurrectionists in Congress mm. who aided and abetted, which is the, under the 14th Amendment, uh, the expulsion. Exactly. And so that is a, a different statute. Um, but the question as to whether or not Trump can be prevented from serving by a simple vote, if Republicans decide not to join a two-thirds supermajority, that really seems to be the essential question. Because if they can't get the two-thirds to convict, can they still disqualify Trump from future benefits, including receipt of intelligence briefings, since he demonstrated himself to be someone who wants to compromise American security through the capital violence and terrorism? Right. So I think that, you know, what you talk about here, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which, uh, you know, if you remember the context of that, was added to the Constitution after the Civil War. And there was, of course, a concern that those who supported the secessionist South and the slave power would try to regain sufficient public office to basically reinstitute that, uh, reinstitute slavery. Um, And So this part of the Constitution allows Congress, by a simple majority, to disqualify people from holding office for participating in uh, attempting to overthrow the government and participating in sedition and insurrection. And I think that, you know, the Senate would be uh, would be completely open to following both paths, both the path of impeachment and the 14th Amendment disqualification route. You know, it's something that I think there there are constitutional consequences that are important that attach to both parts of the Constitution. And so I think it's incredibly important um, as a, you know, I say this as a constitutional lawyer, um, I think it's important that the Senate and Congress pursue both paths. But Certainly the 14th Amendment is one that is open to Congress because I think there's a very good argument that Trump's words that even those that we just know on the public record and, uh, you know, they certainly could investigate further into things that are not 
um, known to the public at this point. Based on what we know, I think there's a very good argument that uh, President Trump did contribute, did incite the insurrection at the Capitol that attempted to thwart the, the transition of power that is laid out in the Constitution with the certification of the Electoral College vote. So I think that I think that is uh, something that qualifies under the 14th Amendment. And I think the Senate and uh, the House would be completely within their rights to do so under the 14th Amendment. But I do think it's right that they are following impeachment as well. So the short answer is that if, in fact, the Senate did not convict, there still are mechanisms, constitutionally allowable, even required mechanisms to address the threat of Donald Trump as an ex-president, um, even as much as there was a threat when he presided in the office. Let me ask you about the trial. There is debate because the Constitution text does not refer to who should preside over the trial in the event of an ex-president, but in the normal situation, as was the case with the first impeachment and uh, the impeachment that Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson before him, the chief justice of the United States. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, um, I think it's a little constitutionally unclear, frankly, because part of the reason that the chief justice presides in the instance of a sitting president being uh, tried for impeachment is because the idea that the vice president has, uh, who is normally the presiding officer of the Senate, has a significant interest in the outcome of that impeachment trial as the next in line to the presidency. Obviously, if you're talking about, uh, in this case, Vice President Harris, um, you know, it's different because you're not talking about the uh, trial of her boss, President Biden. So that conflict of interest doesn't hold here. But at the same time, you know, I think there is an argument to be made that because it is an ex-president, because of um, the gravity of the situation, it would be appropriate for the chief justice to preside. But, you know, it isn't entirely clear. And some of the reasons why you'd have the chief justice preside over the impeachment trial of of, a, um, of an ex-president is just different in this context. So, um, you know, I think it'd go either way. I'm sure Chief Justice Roberts would be very happy to not have to preside over this um, impeachment trial. But, uh, you know, we'll see when we hear from the Senate how they plan to proceed the impeachment trial after Speaker Pelosi delivers the articles of impeachment to the Senate. There is also the question about the president's representation, and it has been discussed that Giuliani might be his lawyer in the impeachment trial, which is ironic given the fact that Giuliani, perhaps even more than the president, made literal reference to inciting violence, uh, literally encouraging people to stand up with arms to take back their government, in effect, to rebel against the government. When it comes to the president's defense, I think that Rudy Giuliani would be a poor choice for many reasons, um, not least of which is, as you mentioned, the um, uh, the fact that he might very well be a witness in part of these investigations because of his own participation in the, in the um, rally that preceded, as you said, this coup attempt. You know, there has been also mention of John Eastman, who 
um, is a, a far right conservative law professor who was recently at Chapman, although they um, uh, had a, a fairly unpleasant parting of ways and he retired from that from Chapman University Law School. But he um, he was also at that rally. So, you know, the people who are left who might be willing to represent Donald Trump in this trial, you know, are all in some ways implicated themselves. So I'm not sure who his representation will be. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the Senate decides is the most appropriate way um, to go forward with this trial, because unlike the last impeachment of Donald Trump, so much of of the evidence here is in plain sight. And, you know, you can hear the words of the president, read what he said on Twitter as this was unfolding. Um, You can, uh, you know, frankly, the senators themselves can take their own personal experiences into account because they were victims of this attempted coup as well. And they were the ones hiding in the Capitol. They were the ones whose lives were at risk when these uh, this group of insurrectionists seized, seized the Capitol. And so, you know, we've seen the video, we've heard President Trump's words, we've seen his Twitter messages. And so, you know, this isn't like last time where we had to have, a you know, a lot of evidence and the Senate really should have had extensive witnesses last time because of uh, the way that, um, you know, there was detailed evidence necessary to be considered and it was considered in the House the last time that President Trump was impeached. So I think this could be a very quick trial. Uh, whether President Trump has to represent himself or not uh, remains to be seen. Shifting to the restoration of the judiciary and an impartial judiciary, um, what can be accomplished in terms of rebalancing the court after these past four years by a simple majority um, as opposed to acts that might require nuking the filibuster and in effect the two thirds majority to get to, um, to, to any of that being accomplished. When we talk about the expansion of lower courts, adding seats to the Supreme court, or frankly, just any kind of judicial restoration that is necessary in the wake of Trump? That is a really great question. And, you know, the judiciary has taken a real hit during the Trump administration, you know, in part because of, um, you know, the the actions that Trump supporters uh, really cheered and Mitch McConnell jammed through these ideologues being put on the bench who are overwhelmingly white and male. And not just the type of people who are put on the bench, but the ways in which they were put on the bench really undermined the legitimacy, particularly of the Supreme Court, because that is really the most high profile part of our nation's judiciary. I think, you know, obviously starting with preventing Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court from getting a hearing and a vote to then the um, calamity of the Kavanaugh nomination and confirmation. And then, of course, rushing through Amy Coney Barrett right before an election. Well, frankly, as an election was ongoing, millions of people had already cast their votes for the next president. Uh, 
at the time her nomination was considered and then confirmed by the Senate. So there's a real crisis of legitimacy when it comes to the Supreme Court in particular. And then, you know, most people interact with the justice system through the lower courts. The Supreme Court hears very few cases, while they're very important, very few cases in our federal judicial system compared to the cases heard by federal district court judges and federal appellate court judges. So when you have these people put on the bench by President Trump who do not reflect our nation's diversity and who in many cases are unqualified and might be pursuing a political agenda rather than impartial justice, that harms the legitimacy of the entire federal judiciary. So I think looking at the problem and then thinking of the solutions is an important way to go to go about it. You know, you talk about what requires um, a filibuster-proof majority or um, would require nuking the legislative filibuster. Well, it's basically anything that requires legislation. So what the situation we're in right now is that um, you do not need, uh, you. so we, we got rid of the filibuster for judges. So now uh, Biden can get his nominees to the court confirmed with just a simple majority. But something that would require legislation, like expanding the number of seats on the Supreme Court or expanding the number of seats on the lower court, that would require either getting a filibuster-proof majority or getting rid of the legislative filibuster. And there are very good arguments for why you should get rid of the legislative filibuster. Um, you know, it's anti-democratic. It has been used in the past to uphold uh, Jim Crow era laws, and so you know. There's a good argument for that in and of itself. But I want to get to something that you mentioned that I think is really important and kind of gets lost um, because the Supreme Court takes the spotlight, and that's the expansion of the lower court. Some of these other things we're talking about, you know, court reform, expanding the Supreme Court, maybe lowering barriers of access to justice, those are true reforms. But expanding the number of seats on the lower court is simply doing what is necessary to make our justice system work effectively. The the idea that you need to add more judges to the federal district courts and the federal courts of appeals really is not a partisan issue. We have the Judicial Conference headed by conservative Chief Justice John Roberts saying over time that we need to add more seats to these courts because they're overburdened and they can't Dis, they can't dispense justice effectively because they are understaffed. And so that's just, you know, frankly, a need that we have so that the wheels of justice can uh, turn uh, more swiftly and smoothly. And that's something that I would hope would proceed regardless of however the new administration seeks to work with Congress on Supreme Court reform. So what I hear you saying is that Virtually anything related to expanded seats on the judiciary, either at the Supreme Court highest level or lower federal courts, would require nuking the filibuster, would require a two-thirds vote to then get to a simple majority vote. Yes, it would require pretty much nuking the legislative filibuster, unless there is some newfound and frankly shocking spirit of bipartisanship uh, that is discovered by the Republican part of the Senate. So would there be any way to incorporate judicial 
reform into reconciliation. That that that's a process that does only require simple majority. It may be a newfangled idea that you've never even heard or that's never even plausibly been suggested, but it's one thought that occurred to me. So I certainly haven't heard of that. You know, I um, encourage creativity to make sure that our judiciary is staffed and working appropriately. So I'm sure if it's possible, the smart folks on the Senate side will uh, get into it. If and when there is an opportunity for reform because it's integrated into reconciliation or because the floodgates have opened, what area would be most vital to pursue first? There's discussion about adding Supreme Court seats, adding states. Um, What might be the first most significant thing that should be done in the event that a simple majority can carry weight now? Certainly putting more judges, putting more seats on the lower federal courts, that's the district courts and the courts of appeals, that should be done right away. You know, it, as, as I said, it's, it's not really even a partisan issue. It's something that both Republicans and Democrats in the past have noted is a problem and needs to be solved. So that should be done right away. And I would also note that both respect to whatever new seats are added and to whatever vacancies arise under the current number, President Biden has an incredibly important opportunity, which I certainly hope and expect that he will seize to ensure that the people put on the bench in stark contrast to those put on the bench by President Trump are diverse in terms of race, gender, orientation, ability, et cetera, as well as diverse in terms of background. I hope that there will be nominees from the civil rights community, from uh, immigration lawyers, those who know from experience by representing individuals in the court system, how the power of the law can work to empower or disempower those who are most marginalized uh, in this country, as well as people who are deeply qualified to be on the bench. And so, you know, that can be done without legislation. That can be done just simply by choosing nominees who will make our system of justice more indeed just. So President Biden can do that on day one, and I certainly hope that he will. In addition to adding seats to the lower courts, you know, I think that there are big questions of democracy that, you know, should be considered, that should be undertaken And I think, obviously, I'm a resident of D.C., so D.C. statehood is one that is close to my heart. But the idea that there are so many of us um, in this city who do not have representation in Congress, and, you know, especially, I will say, having been through the events of the siege of the Capitol and the way that it affected our city, to not have representation in Congress, uh, I should say effective representation because we have had the tireless Eleanor Holmes Norton in particular working for us, but she doesn't have a, a, you know, a meaningful voice in Congress. That's something that's incredibly important. And it is a partisan issue, unfortunately, because Republicans see it as, you know, a democratic power grab, but it's really not a partisan issue. It's a democracy issue. To that point, the democracy issues that will define the next decade if not the next American century, include 
the repercussions of the Citizens United Supreme Court decision, gerrymandering decisions that are made by the Supreme Court. So Rick Hassan at UC Irvine has made the point that um, if you don't add enough seats to the Supreme Court to ensure that decisions will be made to protect Voting Rights Act, to, to protect the rights of constituents and districts not to be gerrymandered. Um, if you don't have a majority seat on the Supreme Court, then you know you could legislate the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. You can legislate ab- abolishing Citizens United, basically overturning that decision, and then the Supreme Court would just go and reverse it. So what is the right way to think about the kind of cause and effect of these kinds of actions that would revitalize democracy. So I think that's true to a certain extent. You know, I think Congress absolutely should start with uh, re uh, redoing the coverage formula for the Voting Rights Act, which was struck down by the Supreme Court and in the infamously awful Shelby County decision. And that decision is part of why we've seen such virulent uh, race focused voter suppression and discrimination uh, in the last several elections. So Congress absolutely can do that. And I think that even with this Supreme Court, it would withstand scrutiny. Um, They can go about using their constitutional authority to enforce the amendments to the Constitution, particularly the 15th and 19th um, amendments, um, as well as the um, uh, 26th Amendment about poll taxes and uh, and the amendments about youth voting, you know, those enforcement powers granted to Congress can and should be used to pass laws that will work to protect the right of all to vote. Um, you know, will they get challenged in the courts and in this particularly conservative judicial landscape? Um, are they at risk? Yes, I I would agree with Rick for sure on that. But I think that, you know, Congress needs to act. And those of us who defend these policies in the courts will fight tooth and nail to make sure that even the conservative justices recognize the righteousness and the constitutionality of these actions. Final question, Elizabeth You referenced today's landscape as a conservative judicial landscape. When you take the example of Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who came from what used to be called a conservative legal establishment and then pushed authoritarian politics to try to accomplish their goals – you I, I wonder if you fear that the new generation of Trump appointed judges are going to at all deviate from norms, even though we did see Trump appointed judges rule properly in, in cases around the election where there was no evidence and there was just a political motive or do you at all fear that any elements of the Trump judicial appointment process will further the authoritarian culture that Federalist Society alums 
you know, or at least politically aligned alums like Hawley and Cruz represent now? Yes. Yeah, so certainly the idea of conservatism as being uh, allied with the Constitution, something they like to uh, put out there, um, I don't know where that went because certainly Holly and Cruz know better. They know that the election lies that they were pushing are not true. They know that the power that they were asserting Congress had to reject the electoral college count, they know that was wrong. And, you know, their intellectual pedigrees give legitimacy to this fraud and these lies. And that is uh, very irresponsible and concerning. You know, when it comes to the judges that were put on the court by President Trump, you know, certainly there is a concern that they will follow a political agenda, not even a conservative ideology, because, you know, look, elections have consequences. One of those consequences is that the party uh, in power gets to put judges on the bench. And so is it wrong that you might have a judge or a justice who has a more conservative ideology than a progressive one? And then simultaneously, when you have, you know, democratic victors in elections that they put more progressive jurisprudential thinkers on the court, that's okay. The problem is when a judge, rather than following the law where it leads, seeks to embark upon a political agenda. And so that is the concern. And that was the concern with a lot of these Trump nominees who refused to say that Brown versus Board of Education was correctly decided, um, you know, who seemed to have more of a background in conservative politics than in actually um, knowing the law. And so, you know, that is the concern. Certainly, I think that we've allowed for far too long conservatives or even so-called conservatives, because you're right, that's so much more about what we're seeing today is about authoritarianism than uh, real conservatism. You know, we've allowed them for too long to take the mantle of being uh, the standard bearers for the Constitution. Because if you actually look at the arc of progress of our Constitution, the way that it has been amended over time, the addition of the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal, equal protection for all and citizenship at birth for all who are born on U.S. soil. And then the amendments made over time to ensure that our democracy is more inclusive, um, adding women to the franchise, ensuring that youth can vote, that you can't be protect, you can't be prevented from voting if you can't pay a poll tax or something similar. This whole arc of constitutional progress has made our constitution and its most essential elements a deeply progressive document. And a lot of conservatives today want you to forget that. But, um, you know, people like me and my organization, the Constitutional Accountability Center, we exist to say that that is not true. And so, you know, if there are judges on the bench, no matter who appointed them, who are willing to follow the law and the words of the constitution where they lead, then, uh, you know, we can reach progressive outcomes. We can reach the right outcomes. Elizabeth Wydra, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.